morning. My name is Fiona. I'm going to be bringing you the Bible reading this morning. If you were here last week, you remember that Jesus was at the Festival of the Tabernacles in Galilee. Uh, and the very last verse of last week's reading says, Then they all went home. So the very first verse of this week's Bible reading, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, begins like this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Before I get into my sermon, so this, this bit's not my sermon. This is, this is a way for a preacher to buy, buy time here. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you some stuff. Um, in the grey box, you'll see on page four, it says, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 753 to 811. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 736, John 2125, Luke 2138, or Luke 2453. Um, so, you, yeah, and in your Bible, this might be in italics, this section. Um, and... You might be wondering, why? What are they saying here? Well, it's because the majority of scholars don't think it was ever really originally part of the Gospel of John, this letter. And it's because we've got lots of copies of the Gospel of John that are really ancient, like early Greek, fully written out um, copies of the Gospel of John. Um, and uh, the earliest full copy we've got is as far back as 200 AD. But the first time we see this appear, this story appear at the start of chapter 8, is in a copy from a 900 AD. That's a long way later. Um, and the, nevertheless, uh, it seems to kind of ring true, doesn't it, as a Bible story. It's powerful and we love this story. Um, and we've got historical records to show that... Um, Early, early church, the early church fathers knew about this story and taught about it. Um, there was a, a person from the first century, first century called Papias who knew about this story of a woman caught by, um, in an act of sin and Jesus ministered to her. And also Augustine knew about this story. So um, we treat it as scripture, although not really from the Gospel of John. And at one point, the, the people who, um, the, the scholars who kept, you know, writing... Uh, repeating and the, the um, script of the, the Bible as they hand wrote it out over and over again, they decided this is a good spot for it. Um, and Australian scholar Leon Morris writes this, who's you know famous for his, his expertise on the Gospel of John. He says, but if we cannot feel that this is part of John's Gospel, we can feel that the story is true 
to the character of Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true. It speaks to our condition and it can scarcely have been composed in the early church with its sternness about sexual sin. So there you go. Um, that's just to help you in your Bible reading. And you'll find that there are a few other times when this happens in, when you're reading through the Bible. Uh, it's good to kind of find out. Okay, let me get into the sermon proper now. Uh, there's, a, there's a Presbyterian minister from America who I quite like. He's about my age. Maybe he's a little bit older than me. And his name's Scott Sauls. And uh, he's a prolific tweeter. And he, um, on the 5th of Feb, he tweeted this, which uh, took my... Notice, he wrote, The older I get, the more convinced I become that every person, without exception, is dealing with shame. It has been said, be kind, because everyone you meet is fighting a hidden battle. I think that's right. And I have to say, as a pastor, uh, who spends a lot of time talking to people about their lives, that I think this is true. Like, a lot of us, many, many people uh, carry shame with them little either it's just pocketed away in the background or sometimes it dominates in different ways and often I find that this is actually sexual shame as well shame around sexual sin or something to do with sex so shame that is to do with a person's maybe misplaced um, sexual desires or shame because of their secret fantasy life or mistakes they've made in the past they can't get over or or it might be shame because of sexual abuse even. Sometimes we're ashamed of things we have done and sometimes we're ashamed of things that have been done to us. Sometimes our shame is justified in the sense that we've really acted in a way that we know we shouldn't have. And so an appropriate level of shame, it's actually good. It's functional, it's healthy because it stops us from doing it again, um, making that same mistake. Because it's shame, if you think back to the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, it's shame which was the response of the first humans, Adam and Eve, um, to cover their nakedness before God and before each other. And that kind of idea of covering up our shame, knowing you know, that we're carrying some kind of issue, baggage now, we keep doing this. This is what human beings do. We cover ourselves, we put on masks, we hide from each other and God because of our shame. Other times, we can go on feeling shame about things we shouldn't, we, or we don't need to be feeling shame for. Perhaps we've made mistakes when we were younger, and now we're older, but we just can't forget or let go of those mistakes. Perhaps we have a distorted view of right and wrong. Perhaps we feel shame because we feel exposed when we become vulnerable, or because we have failed at a relationship, or because friends have rejected us. And while you could say that we don't deserve to feel shame about some things, nevertheless, the shame is real. The feeling is real. We live in a broken world. And unfortunately, this easily leads to a dysfunctional conscience, whether it's through the habitual indulgence of sin or whether it's from the wounds caused by the sins of others. We receive scars on our conscience so that we can't rightly see ourselves as God sees us. When our conscience is under attack, I think also the devil drives us to despair, pounding home the conviction that we are unlovable and that God couldn't possibly love us. So to one degree or another, another every child of God wrestles with a scarred conscience every day of our lives. Every human being does, in some way or another. 
So for all these reasons, you can see that what Scott Saul's saying in this tweet, that every person is dealing with shame in one way or another, it does seem to ring true, doesn't it? If this is you, I invite you to listen to this story about Jesus and the way he deals with our shame. The story begins with Jesus uh, leaving the temple in Jerusalem and he goes to the nearby Mount of Olives, which seems to be one of his favourite places to go. And then the, early the next day, he goes and returns to the temple courts and his popularity has grown. He's really become a bit of a rock star now. He has a following, so he goes there and it says a crowd surrounds him. All the people gathered around him and he starts to teach them. And his old enemies, the teachers of the law and Pharisees, come to him as, as well. But they're not there to learn. They've got a different agenda and their agenda is to try and set Jesus up and to expose him. And so these religious authorities bring this woman who they say has been caught in adultery. She's been caught having sex with another man who's not her husband. And it sounds like she's actually been caught in the actual act itself. Like it's not as if, you know, they heard a rumour and they, and they kind of knocked on the door and said, have you, you know, it's, it's actually they've caught her in, in this act. Look at verse 3 and 4. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She, she's a real person, a real human being made in, the image, made in the image of God. God knew her intimately. He knows how many hairs are on her head. God knit her together in her mother's womb and loves her. And yet they were using her and demeaning her for their own corrupt ends. And presumably, when whoever it was who caught her caught the man as well, but we don't see this man in the story. Where is he? He's, he's not there. Surely he's guilty as well. The ancient Jewish laws from the book of Leviticus state that um, both parties should be tried, it says in Leviticus 20, verse 10, but they're not really interested in actually keeping the law here. What they want to do is actually catch Jesus out. They want to expose him as a false messiah, hopefully. That's what their, their goal is. And look at verse 5, they say to him, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? As Jesus got more famous, there were some, as we mentioned this last week, some who were maybe wondering if he was another Moses, like a kind of a, a new Moses for the new era, a prophet. He sounded a bit like Moses. He's doing miracles like Moses did. Here the religious leaders are trying to pit Jesus against Moses perhaps in front of the crowd. The penalty for adultery, according to the law of Moses, was death, death for the man and the woman. However, the law also made room for the repentant sinner to seek out the mercy of God, and they would not be executed. This is why King David, who famously committed adultery, uh, was not put to death. Um, apart from the fact that he was also the king, he probably had ways to get out of it. But this is why you have psalms like Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, there's definitely a theme in the Bible of mercy, but these religious authorities didn't, weren't interested in mercy. Now, we can think when we read these kind of passages that stoning is kind of just a normal part of the life of Jesus and the day, time of Jesus. And partly that's Monty Python's fault from the life of Brian. Uh, you know, it makes it look like stoning happened every second. 
Uh, remember the man who's brought before the chief priests, in, if you've seen the movie, you probably haven't because it's unholy and, you know, you should never watch films like that. But if you have, just happen, you know, um, you know, he's brought before the chief priest for blasphemy and he says, I'd had a lovely supper and all I'd said to my wife was, that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. And then they try and stone him. But actually, despite this, despite what the python says, there's little evidence that much stoning occurred in that time, well, especially for the, um, the sin of adultery. The, the, you know, we've got the story of Stephen, but it's, it's kind of more rare than, than it is common. And yet these religious leaders are keen to bring it back for this isolated case because they want justice rather than mercy, and they don't have the heart of God at all. They have this outrage mentality. They want to see blood on the floor. They're going to heap all the anger onto this woman and they love this scandal and they, they don't care if she suffers. They know that Jesus will want to show mercy but then he'll also want to keep the law because you can't be like a true Messiah and break the law although he's already sort of doing things that makes him think he's breaking the law like healing on the Sabbath. If he makes a mistake here he might look harsh and lose his good reputation as being, a, being merciful. Have they caught him in a trap? He needs to work out a way to defuse this bomb they've put in front of him, a reputation bomb. Well, they've asked him his opinion about what they should do. It says he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And he repeats this action again in verse 8. And we don't have any idea about what he wrote. Uh, I think he's probably just being dramatic. Like, you know, when you, you um, talk to some people and they just take their glasses off and they make a point and then they put their glasses back on again. I think that's what he's doing, he's getting down the ground and just building the tension. They kept questioning him, so he stood up and said these famous words, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Very famous words. When rape and adultery occurred in ancient society, women bore the visible scars of this, often because they might even get pregnant. It's harder for them to hide it, but the men could pretend nothing happened. But with Jesus' words here, he cuts through all of this double standard. No one is without sin, so no one is in a position to judge. And he was right. Perhaps also each of those men were actually specifically guilty of the sin of adultery. At least adultery in your heart, because we know from what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about this. All you have to do is look lustfully. Um, at a person, and, you, and you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, what we have to make sure we don't misunderstand Jesus' words here, he's not creating a new law here that says that if you are a sinner, then you can't correct the sins of others. If we all use this excuse of our own personal sinfulness as a reason not to challenge others about their sin, nobody would challenge anyone. And then we would have a church of cheap grace, which is not actually a loving church. It's just a pathetic sort of church that um, just sort of, oh, yeah, I won't say anything. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And actually what we're doing is protecting ourselves. Um, so what is Jesus showing us here? He's actually exposing the hypocrisy of religious people who position themselves over others and, 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 ju and are judgmental towards others. They flatter themselves and are constantly critical of others. And so the lesson we're learning here is that we all need true humility when we minister to one another, we've got to meditate on our own conscience and be both witness and judge against ourselves before we come to others. 
then we will promote a true kind of Christ-like grace in that humility. We will be empathetic and loving towards others as we challenge and encourage them away from sin. After Jesus said, let anyone who is without sin cast a first stone, each of the men surrounding the woman and surrounding him realized that he did not have a leg to stand on. Jesus had silenced their outrage. So one by one they walked away. Jesus had brought these hypocrites before the judgment seat of God. And whereas it started with the woman being shamed, now the accusers are the ones being shamed, or they're at least ashamed in their own guilt. And only Jesus is left with the woman standing there. And he says in verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And there's only one man who's without sin in that story, and that's Jesus. And he doesn't condemn her. But he sends her on her way. Go now and leave your life of sin. Or another way it can be translated is stop your sinful habit. <laughs> he shows compassion on her. But he also tells her to leave her life of sin, especially her adultery, and he gives her a chance to start again. He lifts her shame off her shoulders and puts it onto himself. Jesus famously says in an, on another occasion, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Every adult nurses some shame, often it's sexual shame, some more than others. If this is you, know that Jesus loves you. He's holding his hand out for you. He's offering you healing for your scarred conscience. And while in this life that scar may never really fully go away, you, might, you will remember, you, you don't forget your life. It's, it becomes a lasting memory of your past. You can still nevertheless live a new life as a forgiven person with Jesus and live in hope that one day you will be in eternity and that, and that scar will, will be gone forever. Your past will be completely healed. One preacher put it this way, you are more sinful than you can believe but you are more loved than you can imagine. God loves you as his child and he sent Jesus to take that sin away, to provide forgiveness and give you new life. Now, let's notice something with this story, which is significant. With this woman, Jesus does not offer her forgiveness. Is he holding back the forgiveness? It just doesn't say. So far, he is, he's, she's given no sign of repentance or of faith. And we're, we assume all that sort of probably happens next, but we just don't find out. Um, how does she need to respond so that she can be a, a forgiven child of God, a saved person? Well, he's already told her to leave her behind her sin. And she needs to say sorry for her sin. She needs to own up to it. And she needs to put her faith in Jesus. 
Jesus has made the first move with her. He's reached out to her and he's stood in between her and the accusers. The wrath. He put himself in her place that she, so that she would not suffer. He shows her mercy and he calls her to righteousness. And he does this with all of us. If you believe that this is what Jesus can do for you, if you've come to this realisation, then let me lead you through the steps that she needs to take and that we need to all take. Because we're all her. First of all, we need to leave behind our sin. To repent means to turn 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And so leave your life of sin is to walk in the opposite direction of your sin. You, you might have to name it, you know, first work out what it is. And you could even meet up with a friend and, and say, I, I've been struggling with something or other, and talk about it so you can say it out loud and gets it out of the darkness into the light. It becomes less myst- mysterious. And then you might have to make some lifestyle choices to help you avoid your sin. If hanging around with certain people leads you down the wrong path, for example, then you might need to avoid those people or say something to them at the least. You, you have to want to want to change. And a major part of stopping sinning, leaving your life of sin behind, is to ask God for strength. Because he doesn't leave us on our own. He offers his Holy Spirit to help us resist temptation. And if you stuff up and sin again, well, don't give up, try again. And you need to know you're still a child of God and you're still loved by God. And you're still not condemned by Jesus. What matters is not your perfection, but Jesus' perfection. It's Jesus' perfection that saves you. What matters is your desire to be obedient. If you stop desiring to be obedient, that's when you're really in trouble. If you desire to be obedient, well, that's what what it means to be a Christian. Then you spend the rest of your life growing into that obedience in the power of the Spirit. And the second thing the woman needs to do and that we need to do is to say sorry. To say sorry before God is to start by confessing your sins, confessing who you are before God as a a broken person, as a sinful person who needs forgiveness. Um, And if you confess your sin to me, for example, you don't have to just confess to me, you could confess to another Christian person, but if you were to confess to me and I was listening and I was actually believed that you were really sorry, I am compelled by God to offer you forgiveness. If you are actually sorry and you say, I want to confess my sin, I'm compelled to offer you forgiveness because it's not up to me to... to, Although it does say that I can hold it back if you're not sorry, if you're just trying to make stuff up or if you're just trying to get away with something. But if you're genuinely sorry, then I have to offer you forgiveness. And all Christians have to do that for each other. All your sin, including the one that you've just told me, has been placed on Jesus' back. He's carried that burden onto himself and he has taken it away with him to the cross. And so you say... In the name of Jesus, I forgive you for all of your sin. So I encourage you to find a Christian friend to whom you can do this with. And maybe you might be the one who listens to the other person. And if this is you, let me encourage you to embrace this ministry of forgiveness. It's it's an amazing thing to offer someone. You're doing an important work. 
And I have a few pastor friends who I confess my sins to. And I find that I need to book myself in every so often to do it again. Because we're all recovering sin addicts. So we need to repent every day. Sin is a habit which is deeply ingrained in our wounded hearts. Our sins die slowly and often painfully because inside of us, the old self goes, no, no, come on, what are you doing? No, don't, don't let go of that. No, what are you doing? The sinful nature cannot be taught new tricks that easily. So we have to live in this kind of constant posture of just being repentant. And that's why we say confession uh, most weeks in church. The old self must be literally killed off. It's a language that um, some theologians use, which I like. You need to kill off the old self. And then lastly, what the woman needs to do, and what she probably, no doubt she would have done in the story, what we need to do if we want to be saved and be with Jesus is, is to put our faith in him. John tells us this story so that we will be inspired by the grace of God, and put our faith in Jesus. Jesus has made the first move on you. He offers you his mercy and his love, and now he invites you to respond. He knows you for who you really are, and he says, nothing you can tell me is going to shock me. Do you think I'm surprised? I'm here for you, and neither do I condemn you. Now leave your life of sin and put your faith in him. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, uh, we bring uh, all of us before you and we think of that woman on that day who uh, received a new life from Jesus, who was not condemned by him and was invited to leave, leave her old life behind. Thank you that Jesus has come for us to save us and to offer us a new life. And we pray for anyone here right now who's feeling burdened by shame from the past or even from the present, that you can move towards them and um, that they can respond to you. Amen.